It's Friday, 3rd of February, and this is your Capital Economics Weekly Briefing. I'm David Wilder, and I'm joined by Group Chief Economist Neil Shearing. Hi, Neil. Hi, David. Coming up, we've got Tom Matthews from our markets team talking about weakening demand in the Treasury market. But first, I wanted to turn to the week just gone and what a week that was. I want to get on to the big US, UK and Eurozone policy decisions in a sec. But before that, can you set the scene by talking through this this sea of data that we've had and what they say about the growth and inflation outlooks for these economies? Well, as you might expect, when we've had a flurry of data, they've not necessarily painted a consistent picture. We've had some data that have been strong, other data that have been weak. In the Eurozone, there's lots of focus on the fourth quarter GDP data last week that showed uh, the economy grew by 0.1% Q and Q in, in the final quarter of last year. So focus on the fact that for now, at least the Eurozone doesn't appear to be in recession. But that 0.1% growth on the quarter was only due to a really large contribution from Irish GDP, owing more to the, the tax arrangements of multinational companies rather than activity on the ground, as it were. Take that out and the, the Eurozone economy was basically stagnant in the quarter. And what's more, there's evidence that towards the end of la the last quarter, so in December, that the Eurozone economy was weakening. So German retail sales particularly weak. So pretty weak picture in Europe. Again, a mixed picture in the US on the activity front. So the back end of last week, we got a strong non-manufacturing ISM index, but we've also had a pretty weak services PMI over the past week. And our tracking model suggests the economy is more likely than not to be in recession within three months. So overall, mixed picture in the US, but again, pretty weak in, in aggregates. So overall, a mixed picture, but one where the world's major economies are still struggling, really. But contrasting the weakness in that activity is this apparent resilience in labor markets. We have to talk about this US payrolls number, 517,000 in January. That is a monster. What does that say about the, the health of the US economy? given what you've just said about, about the weakness seen elsewhere. Yes, absolutely. Huge number. And I think one point that's worth stressing is that whenever you get a large number that you can't quite explain in a series that tends to be volatile, it pays not to attach too much weight to that number. But of course, as US payrolls is arguably the most important data series in the global economy. So obviously the markets are focused on it. It's possible the number was inflated by some seasonal factors. There's lots of revisions in the January numbers to the US payrolls. That might have been paying a, playing a factor too. And it's worth pointing out in the interest of fairness, I think, that not all labor market data from the US have been so unambiguously strong. We've seen the quits rate drop off recently. We've seen challenger job layoffs go up. And of course, we've seen wage growth moderate. So last week, we also got the fourth quarter ECI index. It's the best measure of employment costs and wages in the US. That moderated too. In fact, it's now back to levels that I think the Fed should be pretty comfortable with. But you're right. The overall picture is one of the US labor markets remain pretty resilient, extremely resilient on the face of it, in the face of a, a weakening economic picture. And interestingly, that's repeated in the Eurozone too. The Eurozone in the UK, the labor markets, in both economies look pretty healthy. So we have this puzzle between economic activity that's pretty soft and in many cases softening and the labor markets that look quite strong. In an ideal world, this would suggest that inflation can be tamed without throwing a large number of people out of work. Is that how this is going to play out? So presumably policymakers in the UK and Europe are going to be watching this very closely as well. Well, the hope on that front lies with something called the beverage curve. So this is a relationship between 
vacancies and unemployment. And that that curve shifted out in the during the pandemic. We had lots of mismatch within labor forces, both in the US and, and Europe. The beverage curve shifted out. In other words, for a given level of unemployment, there tends to be many more vacancies because firms are finding it difficult to attract workers because workers have either shifted sector or moved regions and so on and so forth. So the hope was that as those pandemic-related distortions eased, the vacancy rate would drop back, wage growth would drop back too because workers would find it easier to fill those vacancies. Therefore, they wouldn't have to be bidding up wages to find labor and that we'd be able to get wage growth down without having a big increase in unemployment. In other words, without central banks having to really squeeze demand for for labor. That all looked to be playing out in a pretty favorable way up until the last couple of data releases, at least in the US, that has shown the vacancy rate ticking back up again. I think it's still probably too soon to say exactly how this will play out. But if there's one data point to watch, I think over the coming weeks and months, it's what's happening with vacancies and related to that, what's happening with the grits rates. You know, we've had this raft of central bank decisions this week. I guess three flavors of decision. We have the Fed with a, a smaller hike, but apparently hawkish messaging. BOE, they, they, they gave 50 basis points, but, but accompanied it with what was perceived to be dovish messaging. And then ECB, which also did 50 basis points, um, accompanied by hawkish, if, if slightly confused messaging. But, but taking it all together, does it feel like we're in the final stages of this tightening cycle? It certainly seems to be how the markets up until the, the payrolls release at, at least seem to have been taking it. Is that a fair assessment? Well, the markets, you're right. The markets are certainly pushing in that direction. They want to believe we're in the final throws. I think in some cases we might be. I think in the US, despite the evident strength of, of the payrolls numbers last week, the, the, the Fed's more advanced than its tightening cycle. It's managed to get interest rates back above neutral pretty quickly. I suspect it's still got a bit more work to do, but we're looking at one more 25 basis points, two more maybe in this tightening cycle. The Eurozone, though, in the Eurozone, the ECB was later to the time to start its tightening cycle. And I think there's still more evidence of general price pressures in the Eurozone economy. So if you look at core inflation, we got more data on that last week too. That was, that's been stubbornly strong unemployment there. It also at a record low and, and, and labor tightness, labor market tightness at issue too. And interestingly, I thought it was very interesting that you're right, that the messaging was slightly confused following the ECB governing council meeting on Thursday, where markets basically, bond markets rallied on the back of Lagarde's failure to really give any guidance beyond the March meeting. They rallied, they took that as a dovish signal. Then on Friday, we got some pushback through Reuters from some ECB officials saying, actually, there might be more work to do beyond March's meeting. So I think it's pretty clear that the ECB believes it still has more work to do. I think that's right. We've got rates in the Eurozone peaking at 3.5%, which is a bit higher than the market surprising in at the moment. That was Neil Shearing on a jam-packed week in markets. And you could find our coverage of the shifting macro narrative and what that means for DM and EM central bank policy on our website. Now, the Bank of Japan shook up markets ahead of Christmas with its announced tweak to its yield curve control policy. It caused a spike in yields on JGBs and a worldwide shockwave on fears this could mark the start of a process that ends up with Japanese buyers turning their backs on other advanced economy government bonds, not least US Treasuries, the biggest of them all. Bond investors have since returned their focus to central banks other than the BOJ. But Tom Matthews, a senior economist on our markets team, is worried that appetite for US Treasuries is getting weaker. He's just finished an in-depth report all about how the demand picture for Treasuries could be changing, and I'll post that on the podcast page and in the show notes. 
I spoke to him about the report soon after the Fed meeting, and I started by asking about where we think Treasury yields are heading. You know, we've been saying for a few months now that yields were set to fall as investors priced in what we thought would actually be quite a quick pivot from the Fed towards dovishness. I don't think the Fed really gave us actually too strong of a signal about that. But, you know, the reality is that that's seen investors more and more price in that turn towards easing and yields fall. And in fact, where that leaves us now is that investors' expectations for Fed policy aren't too far from our own. So whereas we've gone from being, if you like, bond bulls forecasting quite big foils and yields, now we're in a position where actually the market view has come around quite closely to our own. And we're forecasting only quite small falls in Treasury yields over the remainder of this year and next. So to put some numbers on that, our 10-year Treasury forecast is 3.25% by the end of this year and and 3.0% for the end of next year. That compares with a level at the moment of about 3.4%. So yes, a small fall in yields over the remainder of the the year and next, but compared with fall that we've already seen, I mean, you remember that that yield got up to about four and a quarter late last year. We're basically saying the bond market rally is is all but over. Your report speaks to those forecasts by taking an investor-by-investor look at the main sources of Treasury demand. It builds this case of why appetite will be weaker in future. We're not going to go through all of them, but I did want to highlight one or two, starting with Japan. Markets had this big shock with the BOJ announcement in December, and that kind of leads into this question about private sector demand for Treasuries in Japan. What's the outlook there? And and what would the end of yield curve control mean for that demand? I think, you know, Japanese demand for treasuries over, let's say, the past decade or, or five to eight years, maybe, has been very strong historically. There was this big reallocation away from domestic bonds to, to foreign bonds by some quite big domestic institutions there. But what we've seen over the last year or so, actually, is that demand from Japanese residents has been very poor. And that was even before the Bank of Japan sold some of its foreign reserves late in the year to prop up the yen. And one reason for that that we've argued is that the cost of hedging treasuries back into domestic currency had become prohibitively expensive, essentially, and it meant that picking up that yield, the gap between the 10-year treasury yield and the 10-year JGB yield, which is, of course, quite large, partly as a result of yield curve control, picking up that yield wasn't actually profitable necessarily for Japanese investors once they paid the cost of hedging that back into yen, and that was to do with the relative slopes of the yield curves between the two countries. So, so that's essentially our argument for why demand from Japanese residents for treasuries has been quite weak. And I'm not sure that would necessarily change with the end of yield curve control. As, as you know, it's a forecast of ours that yield curve control will be abandoned you know, within the next few months. And that will probably see the 10-year JGB yield rise a little bit further towards the treasury yield and therefore sort of even further reducing that gap perhaps. So in that respect, you wouldn't necessarily expect to see Japanese demand rebound for treasuries anytime soon. It just doesn't really seem to be worth it for Japanese investors at the moment to be reallocating themselves into treasuries, especially those that would like to hedge the FX risk. And stepping out a bit, what about Asian central banks? Obviously, the BOJ, the People's Bank of China, these have been huge sources of demand for treasuries. And I know your report goes into those demand dynamics, and it touches on our view on where these, where their currencies are going. Can you talk a bit about the role of Asian central banks in, in driving treasury demand? Yeah, that's right. As you said, you know, central banks in the region, particularly in Japan and China, do hold an enormous amount of treasuries on their balance sheets. And, and China's accumulation of treasuries in particular, perhaps coupled with those of some of the other East Asian central banks, 
in the early to mid-2000s were often attributed to as an explanation for why yields didn't rise in the US during the tightening cycle around that time, the so-called global savings glut and the Greenspan conundrum about why Greenspan was hiking rates and, and why Treasury yields, long-dated Treasury yields, weren't increasing. And it's attributed to strong demand from those countries. I think there's a couple of really interesting things here in thinking about how the demand might play out. One is the issue of sanction risk for China and whether or not it wants to and can diversify away from treasuries. Obviously, that has been a very topical issue since Russia's foreign reserves, a lot of which were still US dollar denominated and treasuries were effectively confiscated once Russia was sanctioned for its invasion of Ukraine. And I think there are absolutely probably people at the PBOC or, or in the Chinese authorities that are worried about this risk to their much larger a pile of treasuries. I think we wouldn't actually make too much of that, though. They face the very difficult practical challenge, China, which is that they just simply have such massive foreign reserves that there's not much else they can buy. There's not very many other markets that are that big. And those that are, tend to be with US-aligned countries anyway, you know, such as Japan or Germany or the UK. Those countries might be slightly less likely to sanction China and, and confiscate its reserves than the US, but realistically, I think they'd probably still face the same problem. So we, that's probably why we don't see too much evidence of China meaningfully diversifying away from treasuries, and I outlined some of that in the report. I think the, the biggest threat, if you like, to treasury demand from these countries comes from a couple of sources. One is China's, you know, since the mid-2000s has changed its FX policy quite a bit. It doesn't manage its exchange rate quite so closely. And that means there's less need for such big net treasury purchases as it, as it did back then. But, but I think the second thing is really just demand from the China central bank, from Asian central banks more generally, depends on the path of the dollar. Uh, basically, they'll be buying treasuries if they want to slow the strength of their own currencies. And it's, a, it's basically just not our forecast that the gains in, the, in their currencies are going to be big enough to really prompt them to do this on a big scale over the next couple of years. If we're right that there's going to be a recession in the US, that growth is going to be slowing that globally, that appetite for risk is likely to remain soft, you'd probably like to see, if anything, a bit more dollar strength. So that's probably going to mean that just the need for reserve accumulation by these countries, if they want to slow their own currencies gains is likely to be quite limited. And so as you survey these these sources of demands, you kind of alight on the role of US domestic investors as the key demand source. But you make the point that yields have already fallen quite far and, and, and they've, they've only got a bit further to go. So on, on that basis, how, how do you see US domestic demand holding up? It will really come down to US domestic demand. I mean, in an arithmetic sense, all the treasuries will get bought by somebody and if foreigners aren't really buying them, then arithmetically it will be domestic investors that are. I think the question really is what price will it take for them to want to absorb those treasuries and it might kind of be a, a slightly different price to the one that we're seeing prevailing in the markets now. You know, one observation I make in the report is that if you look at the most recent flow of funds data, demand from what you might think of as the traditional domestic investors to buy treasuries like banks and pension funds and investment funds hasn't been particularly strong in that quarter. Instead, it seems to be of buying through what the flow of funds that are called households and non-profit organizations, which includes hedge funds. So that buying doesn't typically form a, I would say, a steady base of demand for treasuries. But I would expect that as that falls back, some of those more traditional treasury buyers would would step up to the plate, I suppose. The question is, at what yield would they do so? And they may well require a slightly, a slightly higher one 
all else equal. But ultimately, yeah, look, we do think those will step up to the plate. I suppose the other point that I make in the report is that money market funds have, you know, been selling treasuries for for a while to put money instead in the Fed's repo facility. They could easily unwind that and and use that to buy treasuries if the if the price was right. So I, I do think there's capacity in the US domestic financial system to to make up the demand for treasuries. But but as I say, I think the question is at what price will they do so it might well be that forces yields to drift up a little bit from here. And I guess the point you make in the report is that these traditional sources of demand that you discuss used to act as a lid on yields and, and without the, that strength of demand then then obviously there's room for yields to rise a bit further but in the near term not so much i know your report ends with this uh, interesting discussion about this push and pull between term premium and where interest rates may settle could you talk a little bit about that the factors that i'm talking about in the report the supply and demand for bonds or the demand for bonds in particular are factors that in principle affect the term premium for bonds, the additional compensation above the expected average short-term interest rate that investors might receive or pay. And that term premium has been very low over the last few years, if you look at estimates of it at least. And so what I do in the report is have a look back at history at times when perhaps the term premium and the other component of the bond, which we call the risk-neutral yield, have been moving in different directions because that's essentially what we're talking about here. We're talking about an environment where, as the Fed turns towards loosening policy, maybe risk-neutral yields will fall, but term premium could rise as, as demand shrinks. And I think the answer is a couple of things. One is just looking straight at the historical record, it's a pretty mixed picture. Sometimes the overall yield has moved with the term premium. Sometimes it's moved with the risk-neutral yield. I think if you look at loosening cycles in particular, which is despite the fact that the Fed hiked just two days ago, something that we expect to be in quite soon, you would tend to see that yields fall. That is to say, even if term premium rise, the, the falls in risk-neutral yields have, have historically outweighed that. And that's essentially what we're forecasting now. We do think risk-neutral yields will fall a little bit further, not too much, but a little bit further, and that should probably manage to outweigh a rise in, in term premium. So we're still forecasting, as I said at the start, the 10-year Treasury yield to fall over the rest of the year. Don't think that sort of weakening demand is going to be apocalyptic for the Treasury market and see yields shoot a lot higher based on that sort of historical experience. And I think the other point to note is that a lot of these factors have been in play for a while. I mean, Japanese demand was weak for all of last year, but it, it's probably been especially weak over the past few months. You saw, you know, Asian central banks selling treasuries, you know, at times late last year, and and yet bond yields have been falling, right? So we, we can see that some of these factors being in place hasn't prevented the bond market rally already. I do think, you know, over the next couple of years, it could well be the case that either yields fall by less than they might have otherwise, or they even start to drift higher. But it's really more of a sort of medium-term factor, this issue of demand for treasuries, and in terms of the effect it might have on yields likely in the short term to be outweighed by expectations for whatever it is that the Fed's doing in any, any given month. And that's it for this episode. You'll find all the research discussed on our website, capitaleconomics.com. And for the full Capital Economics experience, including access to all our insight, all our data, our 70-strong global team of economists, and much more, check out CE Advance. It's our new digital platform. Details on the website. But until next week, goodbye.